And hello there, Peter Mansbridge here. You are just moments away from the latest episode of The Bridge. It is Wednesday, and Wednesday is Bruce Anderson, and Bruce Anderson is smoke, mirrors, and the truth coming right up. Well, I don't know what those little beeps were. Did you hear those beeps? I did. I think that's on your end. I'm not touching anything oh, over here. It's definitely on my end. But uh, I, I think don't know you what put it an was. elbow on that. Uh, it has on something a to do. It was something to do with with the music. Look, I, I have got a whole new okay. setup here. What's that book behind you? Oh no, never mind. It's another book that you wrote that you want oh, people to know about. Oh, but I have another I, question. I was wondering where I'd put that book. I I thought I'd misplaced it, but there it is, right in the shot for those watching on. Uh, Can people on our buy YouTube that, or channel. is it free, or or no, just no, discounted? No, people, people do it. The books are discounted like immediately, like right out of the gate. They're discounted right out it's of the a gate. Very, it's very. It's a it's crazy special system. price for you. Anyway, it's What's, there. My other question, though, Peter, is you've got a, a thing on. It's like looks like a big hoodie, and it's got a Toronto yeah. Maple Leafs logo and an owl beside it. And I don't know what the significance of the owl is because I've never thought of it as a wise choice to to back the Leafs. But well, tell us about that. <laughs> you don't know what the owl is. You don't know the significance of the owl. Have you ever heard of Drake? Uh, you ever heard of oh, Drake? Yeah. Yeah, I have, yeah. The cool. biggest selling music artist of all time, or whatever it is, albums or something. I think you're probably, yeah, what? By, by, by yeah. miles, like, like, like by millions. All right. He has a company called OVO, October's very own. Huh. I think that's what OVO stands for. But and the symbol the, is the, the owl. Is? So this yeah. is a, this is an OVO um, hoodie. Oh, it's a very cool. It's a, so good for you. you. Yeah. And thanks for explaining it. The um, the Leafs won last night, by the way, as I'm sure you care. Um, they won in a, a remarkable way. They lost the shootout, and then the judges said, oh, no, wait a minute, that la- that last goal by the Florida Panthers on <laughs> didn't really count. So we oh, got we oh, got to do that over again. Oh, I'm going to wake and, up again. And that time, Toronto won. Anyway, here. Excellent. News. I did not start this pathway. You did. Fair enough. So let me let me go on this. Let me start on this because I found this fascinating. You know, when we started Smoke Mirrors and Truth, SMT as it's known in the trade, um, it was about three years ago. And the pandemic was obviously the issue of the day, story of the day. And among mm-hmm. other things, people stopped flying, right? They just stopped flying, and the numbers plummeted. The airlines all went in the tank. Um, employees were laid off, pilots, flight attendants, ticket agents, the whole bit. People they're got still, high, but they stopped flying. Yeah. Exactly. And they're still recovering to some degree in terms of, the, especially on the pilot situation. Um, so the, we saw these drastic, terrible numbers um, that uh, were faced by the airlines in terms of travel. So I saw this. Just yesterday, it might have even been this morning, um, if I can find it, uh, it was the number of flights that were taken yesterday. Now, this was all, you know, hooked into Thanksgiving. But not only was it the, the, the most number of flights and people going through the security systems in the United States, 
Not only was it the first, the, the biggest number of flights um, since the pandemic, it's the biggest number of flights ever, ever, ever yeah. in U.S. history. There were um, 51,332 flights. 2,884,783 people screened going through um, U.S. airports. This is what the skies look like. I'm holding this up for our YouTube viewers. Wow. I've always been amazed by these. Those are all, those little yellow dots, they're all planes. A bit terrifying. It is terrifying. Now, they're... <laughs> they're Incredible they're, safety record, though. Let's be... Yeah, let's I mean, let's face it, they're that. not all flying at the same altitude and on the same course. Um, and that's Thank why you. we have air traffic controllers, one of whom is featured in How Canada Works, by the way. You want to see that? You want to read that? Anyway, I found it fascinating to uh, to, to look. I've always been fascinated by airplanes, as you know. Um, but uh, those numbers are are quite something, and they probably indicate why airlines potentially are making record numbers. There's a lot of reorganization going on in the airline business. Governments are trying to stay ahead of it. The airlines think they're behind it. You know, like that they're not up to speed on what's happening in the airline business. Uh, and it's still shaking down all in the post-pandemic period. But what pandemic taught us and what 9-11 taught us is things can change overnight in that business. Um, and, you know, they can be uh, put in a situation where they're uh, in dire straits in terms of um, profit margins and everything else and employment records. Anyway, that's neither here nor there, and clearly you have nothing to say about that. I wondered where we were going with that, but uh, I, I just think thought it was it an all. interesting thing. I, yeah. You know, I, I think, I don't know, I think it's got uh, somewhere in there, there's a potential for a, a subject. I don't know whether it fits in smoke, mirrors, and the truth, um, but the fact is the airline business is back and roaring, and where it goes from here and where passengers and consumers can benefit or be taken advantage of in the airline business is still something everybody's trying to come to grips with. I saw a story the other day about uh, air travel that caught my interest, but I don't know if we, if we want to spend more time on air, but it was Rishi Sunak. He was talking about uh, Virgin Atlantic uh, flew a plane across the Atlantic for the first time, all with uh, biofuel. And uh, it was made from waste oils. And that's the first time that they've ever taken a big plane across the uh, the Atlantic. Now, to be able to scale that up, that's a challenge. But um, uh, it's encouraging to see uh, the, that kind of innovation and experimentation. Waste oil. Waste oil is still oil, right? It is, but it's oil that's been used in other ways, and so it's uh, kind of recovered as a product. And environmentally, it's considered well. well. I think it's I think it's it's better from an environmental standpoint. I don't know whether it's better than if it was oil made from uh, organic products like uh, organic uh, crops or something like that. But also, can we just talk about politics now? <laughs> <laughs> okay, I know we'll get letters on that, and people say, "Ah, it's just oil." There's still greenhouse gas emissions, and there may well, well be. It's good that the letters go to you. 
They do come to me. All right, let's move on to a topic that I know you're much more comfortable on, even though we disagree. And we disagreed when we first talked about this, I don't know, a year or two ago. And that's this question of ethics surrounding MPs who accept free trips from, it could be from a company, it could be from another country, and what the rules are and what the rules should be. Uh, and specifically, we raised this issue last year when, when it was clear that a lot of MPs were taking trips to the Middle East sponsored by, in one way or another, by the State of Israel. Now, Israel's at war, and uh, Canada is supporting Israel's right to defend itself, but they're caught in the middle on this sort of issue of ceasefire, pauses, truces, what have you. So in the last week, um, a number of Canadian MPs, 60 of them, I think, traveled to Israel. Um, United Jewish Appeal, I think, picked up the tab. Uh, they arrived in Israel, had a, a tours and, and um, uh, briefings, etc., organized by Israel. So here's the question. Is that right? Do you think that's right? Do you have any problem well, with that? Why don't in, instead of putting it as a question, why don't you lay out your opinion and then I'll tell you. Well, I think I my opinion is no different than it was a year ago, which is I don't think it's right. I think there, there, I, I, you know, I think there are issues around that that uh, the ethics commissioner or somebody should have a look at. Maybe they already have and have decided against it uh, or decided that there's no problem with it. I think it. I think especially now, more than at you know times of peace, if there ever is such a thing in the Middle East, I think now especially it's the wrong signal to send for a nation that is trying to find the middle. You know, I don't know, middle ground's probably not the right thing, but try to find um, a, a way towards peace in the Middle East. And here the MPs are accepting trips from one of the. Uh, uh, one of the nations involved in this situation. So I have a problem with it. I, I don't think it's right. right. And, and clearly, both the Conservatives and the Liberals had no problem with it. They went ahead. They, they, they took the trip. The NDP and the Bloc said, no, we don't accept, we're not interested in this. The Green Party and its two seats um, said they were never invited and they wouldn't have taken it if they had. Yeah, look, I think I, I understand your point and uh, respect it. I don't share it. I think the uh, the overall trend in the last number of years has been, from my standpoint anyway, to try to overmanage um, the behavior, the intelligence gathering, the kind of stakeholder relationships uh, that elected people have on the assumption that that we should develop a set of rules that prescribes all of the things that could go wrong if they were willing to be unethical. Uh, and that society and our democracy will be healthier if we reduce the number of things that people uh, could do that would be unethical. And I don't share that philosophy. I think that over time, as long as there's transparency, as long as we, you can find out who those MPs were and where they went and who paid for it, that at the end of the day, we need to let uh, a little bit more oxygen into the room in the conversations that our politicians have. We shouldn't be spending that much time. I was at an event the other night where you know MPs were 
were in attendance. It was a big event or hundreds of people. And, and the notion that um, was on the table is I think they could have uh, one drink or something like that. And I know there are these rules that are made with really good intentions. Um, but I just feel like on balance, we've kind of gone overboard. Uh, in that direction. And I'm sure there are a lot of people out there who say, no, no, MPs go overboard. There's way too much uh, pushing of the envelope in terms of how they approach their, but that hasn't been my experience. Uh, my feeling has been since I worked on the Hill and 40 years ago, that it's good for MPs to get out of Ottawa, not just to their constituencies, but to other places on fact-finding tours. And if the question is, should the government of Canada or the taxpayer of Canada pay for all of those? I'm not that fussed by it as long as we know who's paying for it. And those MPs feel as an obligation to be accountable for the choices that they make um, at election time or with their constituents if the questions come up. And it, to me, we have to sort of treat them as as grownups who can make decisions about those things and, uh, and own those decisions. So I, I'm not suggesting that there can't be some biases that in, that are introduced by trips or other forms of contact. I'm just saying, I think the answer is not to prohibit uh, so much as to be transparent about what happens and, and to have people have the ability to know who's doing what and, and um, on whose dime and then make their judgments at election time. Well, here's where we agree. We agree that um, they should get out of Ottawa uh, as often as possible to see the real uh, issues that they're discussing, and whether that's, you know, uh, a battle a battleground where Canadians are spending money, taxpayers' money, on supporting one side or the other, or engaging with uh, aid groups or what have you, I think that's good. They absolutely should do that, just as they should travel to, uh, you know, situations where there are, you know, forest fires or flooding, or, you know, when the uh, Oil fields of Alberta are up for discussion in Ottawa. They should have a more general knowledge uh, based on firsthand experience than than uh, sitting in the parliamentary library reading history books. Um, so, I, you know, not that there's anything wrong with sitting in the parliamentary library reading history books. Uh, here, where we disagree is on the transparency question. Absolutely, it should be more transparent. But why did it take a CBC reporter to find out they were on, on the public dime? It's not like they announced that they were going on this fact-finding mission and by the way the state of israel or the united jewish appeal is paying for all our expenses or our trip that, that that's not entirely transparent um well they, uh, but, i don't i don't know what the uh, what the mechanism is but i know that i saw on social media several of those mps posting that they were in israel and that yep. they were part of a fact-finding tour and i think that yeah but if the, if that's all you heard if that's all you heard wouldn't you assume that if they no, were there because, as a no, fact-finding well, I mean, I, tour yeah, that maybe. they were paid by by the people of canada i mean they are mps working for the people well i would except i i, I guess i think that i don't think there's a journalist who's covering ottawa who who doesn't know that these trips have been part of, and and not just Israel trips, no, I, for I, years. I agree. Um, so, you know, when MPs say they're going on fact-finding missions, um, 
there is a process by which those are evaluated and reported on. And um, so I, I, I don't find this one surprising and I don't find that there's a lack of transparency because I don't feel like anybody made any effort to conceal what they were doing or who they were going on behalf of who's paying for the trip. And those, um, those missions to Israel have been, you know, a very, very well-known feature of Canadian politics across party lines, as you say, for a very long time. Where do you draw the line or do you, do you think there are, it's all good? No, I, I don't, I don't think it's all good. Um, and I don't know exactly what the, what the criteria are right now by which some presumably are not uh, approved. I think the caucuses have to have some say, presumably they do. Um, I think the ethics counselors have to have some say, presumably they do. Uh, but I think what I'm saying is I, I don't think there's a hard, everything's good and or everything's bad line. I think that what we've done is we've set up a series of rules and regulations that imagine that you can prescribe uh, ethical behavior uh, as opposed to some parameters in which people are encouraged to make smart and ethical choices, but you have to trust on some level that people are going to make ethical choices. And if they don't, you need to be able to know about it. You need to be able to sanction them after the fact, I guess. So my preference would be not to have done so much that we've done starting with the Accountability Act under Harper government. And I, I think you probably had the same experience. You can talk to conservatives who were in the Harper government during that period of time and who look back on those rules that they put in place and say they were too much. Um, we've kind of created a dysfunction. People can't, for example, go in and out of government uh, and the private sector because in some cases that could be bad, but the net effect ultimately is there's just not much transfer of knowledge or uh, culture or understanding between business and government uh, anymore. And I think that's a loss for the system. So I think we should have parameters and we should have um, mechanisms to administer sanctions when things go wrong, but we shouldn't set the, we shouldn't set the rules so tight that we're trying to prescribe everything that everybody does on the assumption that that's the best way to get better government and ethical government. Okay. I think we're getting closer to agreeing on this. Sounds like I'm convincing you. Well, now that you've, you know, really moderated your position. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> all right. <laughs> um, okay. Topic uh, two or three, if you count the airlines as one, which you don't. So there's topic two. Two. Yeah, let's go with two. Um, the history of our country has been one where there's been a constant battle between two levels of government, for sure, provincially and federally over who has the power to do what. Now, the Constitution kind of lays it out pretty clear who, who, who has responsibility in certain areas and, and, and who doesn't. Um, yet, constantly, the two levels are fighting about one thing or another. Um, and probably for the last, well, the last 50 years, the two constants have been Ottawa and Quebec City over constitutional matters. And... Ottawa and Edmonton over energy matters that are 
related in, in many ways to the Constitution. So we have another one playing out now where Alberta is introducing its Sovereignty Act within a united Canada or happy Canada or whatever. I forget the phrase. But it, I, you know, I look at it and I've read all this stuff. I know you know this topic much better than I do. But I look at it and I go, you know what? This is, a, this is like heading nowhere. This is going to be just an argument that will play out. It's kind of performative on, on some levels. Um, we'll allow, you know, it, it, the, at some point it will end up in front of the courts, maybe. But it's not like it's going to be settled next week or next month or even next year. This could play out for quite some time, and I'm not sure what exactly is playing out. Um. I, you know, I, I've, I've watched Premier Smith outline her explanation for doing what she's doing, and I've watched the Energy Minister um, and the Environmental Minister talk about their position on all this. I don't know. It just it just seems to me that this is yet another one of those federal-provincial battles that in many ways will, will kind of slide over the heads of uh, many of us because there won't be a resolution. Certainly, anytime soon. Yeah. What do you make of it? I think uh, I think four things. Uh, one is that the long running battle between Alberta Conservatives and federal Liberals is always going to feature something like the Sovereignty Act. There's always going to be a search on the part of those Alberta Conservatives for something that they can use to show that they are fighting for Albertans against the hegemonic kind of federal government. And they did that not only against liberals, they did that a little bit against Brian Mulroney, as you remember, it led to the formation of the Reform Party. Um, so that instinct is always there, and there will always be a search for the device, uh, whatever that political device is. Right now, it's the, the Sovereignty Act. The second thing is, um, this fight, if the liberals continue to lose as badly as they are in the polls, won't matter. Uh, in two years, uh, because there will be a conservative government and they will be able to work out an arrangement with Alberta on the electricity issue, which is at the heart of this current conflict that may not be good for the planet, but will work for the, the province of Alberta. No question whatsoever. So we're really talking about something that has political repercussions and implications in this supposedly two year period before the next election. And I think we need to kind of understand how the federal players are going to deal with it in the context of they see that election coming and they know that one party is ahead by 15 odd points right now, which won't do the thing that Daniel Smith wants to use the Sovereignty Act to prevent. The third thing is that um, we need to decarbonize, which is what the, I believe that some people don't, but you know, if we're going to fight the warming of the planet, then switching our energy systems, our electricity systems, important to that. And so the federal government has laid out a set of targets and and approaches to try to accomplish that within a timetable that scientists have said is necessary in order to prevent the worst effects of climate change to happen. So the underlying idea that the federal government is trying to put in place is one that if you believe that climate is changing and we need to do things to stop that from happening is a good idea. And the last point is um, 
what Smith says is her essential objection to the federal policy has more to do with uh, timing and the ability of Alberta to control the choices that it makes within the uh, the targets uh, and the timelines. And as I was reading about it, I have to say, I felt like, you know, there are some important issues on the Alberta side here of how they can realistically transition their electricity system as their population continues to grow because they use so much power uh, in the energy marketplace that they have. Um, whether they'll be able to get access to small modular nuclear reactors in a timely enough way to meet those timelines. So she's saying we can get some of the way to where the feds want us to get to within the timeline that they've laid out. We want to move in this direction, but we don't want to be held to targets and timetables that we don't think we can meet. Now, there will be people who will wonder whether she's sincere about that and whether her commitment to that movement is uh, is very profound or whether it's a posture. But And she's certainly capable of posturing. But I do think that there's a substantive issue or two in there uh, that – as I was reading about this made me think, okay, it's not all just the politics of this. There are some substantive issues associated with Alberta meeting those targets in those timetables and, and those need to be discussed. So hopefully the politics of this doesn't prevent people from kind of wrestling those issues to ground and getting on with the, with the choices that need to be made. Here's all I'll say on it. Uh, Cause I kind of shot my bolt just in introducing it, which is, I think both sides of, of are, are being rather are being sincere with um, the discussion, at least in public, um, uh, on their differences. Um, I thought the federal ministers, especially the um, uh, the energy minister, you know, he went out of his way to say, "Look, you know, uh, we've had a number of conversations. I, I hear where she's coming from. We don't agree, but blah 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 blah." Um, and then I watched Danielle Smith, who's at times during her, since she's assumed the premiership, has had a pretty rough, rough go of it in uh, you know, news conferences and, and interviews. I, I uh, watched her this week. One thing I, I'll give her is she's always up for an interview. She doesn't say no to interviews. She does interviews, um, as opposed to, say, her fellow conservative premier in, in Ontario, I can't remember the last time he did an interview. Does, you know, the odd scrum. Um, but a sit-down interview on a particular topic, I haven't seen that. I haven't seen that happen. I, I could be wrong, but she does it all the time. And she <laughs> goes into what some conservatives consider the lion's den. I mean, I've seen her on the CBC more than a few times. Um, and she makes her case. And she, you know, on this one, she's making it clearly. And as you said, there are some areas in this discussion where Alberta has, uh, you know, a legitimate uh, push on grievances about the way the current setup is. So I'm not sure how this is going to play out. I do think that it's it's just going to be sort of there over the next couple of years. And, uh, you know, will a change of government resolve it? Maybe. Maybe not. Um, well, it'll resolve the Electricity Act, uh, the clean electricity uh, regs uh, tension one way or, or like it, it, if the Conservatives win, 
they'll find an accommodation. Let me put it that way. I think that's, that's pretty clear. Um, but, uh, will that be good for the planet? I don't, I don't think we know the answer to that. We need to see more evidence of what it is that Pierre Polyev is going to commit to, if anything on climate change, because so far he really hasn't, um, and uh, and so there's reason to wonder whether or not the outcome of the federal election would be a, uh, a bad one from the standpoint of the decarbonization agenda that the Liberals have put in place. Okay, we're going to take our first break. When we come back, we're going to uh, we're just going to try to sort out uh, once again what to believe in this onslaught of polls um, that has come over the last, well, I guess, two months now. And there's all the polls are pretty much seem to be in agreement, but it's raising some other interesting questions that pollsters like Bruce are asking. We'll get to that right after this. And welcome back. You're listening to uh, The Bridge right here on Sirius XM, Channel 167, Canada Talks or on your favorite podcast platform. Um, you're also watching us, because it's Wednesday, on our YouTube channel. We're glad to have you have you with us, no matter uh, where you're watching or listening. Um, all right, polling. <laughs> the topic that we often come back to, in spite of the fact I, I've always said, uh, you know, enough about polls. I can't wait to get to the next discussion on them. Um are the polling companies piling on, or they're just reflecting what they see as the way Canadians would vote if the in fact if the election was held today, which is always the caveat you've got to, or at least not today, but on the day the polling was done. Um, there is this kind of sense that, like every day, there's a new poll, a new company behind it. Well, not a new company, but another company behind it, and the numbers are are huge, like. like what do you do as an ordinary citizen? Not as a, just a, I know it's hard to separate your job as a pollster and your ordinary citizenship, but do you tire of these? Do you find that it's just like it's enough's enough? I don't know. Uh, I, I don't really. I mean, I, I think that if we were in the middle of a four-year majority government situation, I wouldn't be that interested in these uh, current polls, but we're not in that. We're in a minority government situation. The incumbent government is definitely uh, struggling, uh, to put it nicely. Um, 15 points behind suggests that things can happen. Um, you know, the latest polls that, that point to, I think it was an Ipsos one this morning that said 72%, I think, want um, Justin Trudeau to leave. Um that's a big number. And they reported on their tracking study as being up substantially just in the last few months. Um, so I think it's an important dynamic right now. I think that the uh, they showed, and another poll showed, a bump for the NDP. Um, another poll didn't show that. So I tend to look at them all and sort of say, what are the, what are the areas of consistency? And one of those areas, areas of consistency is a pretty substantial number, including uh, a reasonably substantial number, somewhere between a quarter and a third of liberal supporters want a, a new leader. That's an important thing. 
And so I tend to want to consume a fair bit of that just to see what's happening. See if somebody's figured out another angle to measure it, another way to explain it, um, because I'm curious about it. But for people who aren't as curious about it as, as I am, do they need to know more about it or do they just need one of these every week or two? I, I don't know. I don't think it hurts anything. I think people can consume what they want and disregard the rest. Um, and uh, uh, But I don't think that companies are piling on. I think they're measuring things that are interesting in what's going on in the political landscape right now. Historically, it's always been assumed that the most important number to look at is not the party standings, but the sort of this right track, wrong track thing that's done about government. Are they on the right track or are they on the wrong track? Is is that the one you look at? Uh, it used to be a more important surrogate. Um, it still is important, but in a different way. Right now, um, a few years ago, we started measuring not just how do you think things are going in Canada, right track, wrong track, but what about in the United States and what about in the world? And what we saw is that the numbers in Canada were trending downward because there's a lot of things that were going badly in people's minds. Um, but they were even worse when we asked them about the United States and we're still when we asked them about the world. And so I think what we know from the way that that question works now is it isn't really just a surrogate for how do you feel about the federal government, but there is a relationship between how do you feel about the state of the world that you live in and whether you're happy with the federal government. It's just not the same relationship that it used to be. People don't follow the the steps and the policy measures that the government take so closely so that you can say, well, the reason wrong track is going up is because people didn't like the budget or the fall economic statement or the new defense policy or anything like that. It's more the mood of people is down because of climate change, because of wars, because of a sense that the world is a little bit rudderless in terms of uh, world order, uh, because of inflation and food costs and a sense that you can't buy a house anymore. All of those things feed a mood, which is really, really hard for incumbents right now. And it's hard for incumbents, especially those who people might say didn't cause the problem. This is, I think, Justin Trudeau's particular problem. As I don't think people believe that he caused all the problems that they feel exist in Canada. But I don't think they're convinced that he has the answers to them. And I think that that's the challenge when a leader becomes uh, a little bit um, kind of long in office so that people are, they don't sense the freshness, they don't sense the new agenda, they don't believe that somebody who's been there for eight years can come up with a, a completely fresh approach. And they sort of feel like there's a lot of problems that are closing in on them and they want a fresh approach. So people say we want change and either the government is going to the liberals are going to give them change or they're going to look for it elsewhere. And I think that's the dynamic for Trudeau. Now, I don't think that people think that he's done a terrible job on everything that he's done. Quite the contrary. I think people like a lot of the policies that he put in place. But um, you're a you're a, a serious radio guy. Uh, uh, I'm a Spotify guy, but every once in a while, there's probably a, 
you probably have that, that station that you listen to on Sirius and you go, I don't want to listen to that one anymore. I want to listen to number 292. And I have Spotify playlists and I have probably 50 or 60 of them. And I listen to one a lot. And then after a while, I go, I need to listen to something else. I'm not saying it's as simplistic as that, but people are accustomed to feeling that they should get more stimulation uh, in a political conversation about who to vote for. And I don't think they're getting as much of the kind that they like from liberals right now. And they are getting more of what they like from Pierre Polyev. Tell me how uh, one of the interesting uh, things in your latest data, which is different than the other than the other ones here, you're all searching for some new angle to the, the story and the Canadians' attitudes towards it. The new angle that you looked at was how Canadians, where they place Justin Trudeau on a comparison scale with other recent prime ministers going back 50 years. Um, he doesn't do well in this. Tell us about it. No, and, and uh, you know, it's funny. Uh, this world that we live in is social media. You put some data out there, and the, there's some people who obviously look at it and go, oh, that's interesting. I'm glad that we sort of looked at it that way. And then there's always people who feel like it's their job to write and explain why the question was wrong or how they would have done the question differently or what have you. And uh, maybe I've just been at it for too long, but I, I 40 years of experience. I think I know what I'm doing on this stuff. Anyway, um, there is, uh, so people read these numbers and some people said, well, you know, it's unfair to ask this question uh, where you compare Justin Trudeau to Brian Mulroney and say, who is a better prime minister? Because, um, one person said, well, how would you ask a 20-year-old that question? How would they know? And I'm thinking, well, we ask 20-year-olds all the questions that we ask everybody else, and people are able to come to an opinion based on whatever combination of inputs they have. But I have opinions about politicians who existed before I was alive, and I, I'm entitled to offer that opinion, those opinions, I think. So that was one thing that came back. And another was like, well, isn't it unfair because there's always going to be a recency bias? In other words, that you're going to evaluate the current or the most recent in a more negative light than the earlier. And I don't think that's always true at all. Um, I think it is somewhat true in Justin Trudeau's circumstance right now because he's going through a pretty rough time in terms of people saying, uh the economy isn't working for me. I'm worried about too many things. I don't think the government has answers, but I don't think it's always like that. And I don't think it's um, the same bipartisanship. So when we look at how liberal voters compare Justin Trudeau to Jean Chrétien and uh, Brian Mulroney and Stephen Harper, um, the numbers kind of move back and forth a little bit on the whole. Obviously it's not a bad picture for, um, for Justin Trudeau. But um, it's, it doesn't look like just partisanship there. And if we look at conservative voters, they don't like Justin Trudeau against anybody. Uh, and so I think partisanship does have, play a role in how conservatives answer that question, because I believe that today's conservative voter has become somewhat more partisanized, if that's a word, than today's liberal voter. I don't want to 
overstate that, but I kind of feel like if I'm lifting up the hood and looking at those numbers and the conservatives are like 90% for everybody other than Justin Trudeau, um, which is, I think what we saw, it tells me that that's not a careful evaluation of whether Justin Trudeau was a better prime minister than the others. It tells me it's a hard party line. And if I look at the liberals and I see more variability on those numbers, it tells me that people are answering the question a little bit more on the basis of, well, what about the substance of what Harper did or Mulroney did, that sort of thing. So I, I do think it was a it was a, a signal that uh, there's some fatigue with Justin Trudeau. Uh, but those numbers that show the fatigue uh, as majority across the country are heavily skewed by those conservative voters who just don't like him at all and uh, think that everybody who preceded him uh, was pretty much better. And compare uh, briefly, because we're almost out of time, but compare briefly how conservatives feel about Justin Trudeau today. And, you know, I've heard what you said. Compare that to the way liberals felt about Stephen Harper in the last year of his uh, governing. Yeah, I think it's about 10 points different. So I don't want to say that liberals didn't have a real, um, I don't know, rage is too strong a word, but they were pretty unhappy with Stephen Harper. But I remember it being about a 75% negativity. Uh, It's normal, uh, normal, I guess, for partisans to have uh, kind of an 80% approval of their incumbent leader and a 70% to 80% disapproval of their main opponent. Um, So when I see 90, uh, which is what I see for the conservatives now against uh, Trudeau, that feels elevated to me. And I think it's elevated in part because the way the political conversation works now is it's less about what the columns uh, the columnists are writing. It's more about what you're hearing from your friends or the people that you follow on social media. It's much more that. It's like 3X that. It's, it's what you get from Facebook uh, rather than what our friend Andrew Coyne writes. Um, now, I happen to, you know, I agree with some of what Andrew writes and I disagree with some of what he writes, but it's always a kind of a thoughtful kind of a, he digs into the issues. And I'm not sure that the Facebook commentary that people are exposed to in such volume today is of the same caliber of, uh, uh, of thoughtfulness. So I think that's where we're at right now. I think that um, the liberal are showing less enthusiasm for their leader than is normal. And that usually happens when people are worried about the next election or they're restless for a sense of change and a dynamic and they're, uh, they're not as unhappy with Pierre Polyev as you would normally expect to see at this point in time. And whether or not that changes, sometimes it you would expect that it would heading up to the next election. But I think the challenge for the liberals is um, if the election is about Justin Trudeau, I think they're going to lose. If the election is about Pierre Polyev, they might have a chance of of winning. So how do they make the election be about him when people are continuing to focus a little bit on whether or not it's time for a change? 
I guess that's why they've shuffled the deck on their communications wing inside the prime minister's office trying to find that formula. Uh, mm-hmm. We'll see how that works out. Um, okay, we're going to leave it at that for uh, for this week. Good conversation. A um, couple of things to remind our audience of. Bruce will be back, of course, on Friday with Chantelle Bear for Good Talk. Um, I'll be around all week, but I'm off on the, my book tour. Hint, hint here. Um, starting tomorrow, and I'll be traveling um, in different parts of the country, not all parts. Who's paying for that? The uh, My publisher. Oh, your publisher is paying for yeah, that. I'm, I'm not paying for it, or at least... I don't think I'm banned for it, <laughs> but it's um, it's not one of the combatant uh, nations in the war in the Middle East that's paying for it. Okay. All right. Very good. Well, have a great trip and sell yep. lots of books. And uh, looking forward to it. And listen, we'll um, be in the next one. Comments on anything this week? Great conversation yesterday on disinformation with Lee McIntyre from Boston University. Um, and Janice Stein, of course, was here on Monday and uh, extremely popular. And then Bruce today on on his issues. Uh, you have any thoughts on any of this? Give us a call. Uh, send us a, an email at themanswitchpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, look forward to doing it. If you want the book, it's available in bookstores across the country or online. You can find it there, How Canada Works. It'll be, it's a very interesting book with some dynamic Canadians who you've never heard of before who, uh, to me, are the real people who make the country work. Anyway, we're uh, off and running for this day. Thanks for listening. Thank you again, Bruce. And we'll uh, talk to you all in 24 hours. You bet. Take care.